You're listening to Reboot Presents Replay, where we revisit some of our favorite episodes from Reboot podcasts throughout the years. Today, we're listening to In Quarantine with Steve Bodo, Season 2, Episode 3, which originally aired in August of 2020. In this episode, Steve Bodo talks with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker about Kamala Harris, the future of the racial justice movement, and which medical procedure most resembles getting vetted for the vice presidency. Reboot presents Replay. From Reboot, this is In Quarantine. I'm Steve Bodo, talking life during Corona. And today I'm just going to get right to our guest because there is a lot to talk about, virus-wise and otherwise. He is the junior senator from the state of New Jersey, currently running for re-election to his second full term. Former mayor of Newark, and of course, Rosario's Bay. Corey Booker. <laughs> Steve, I, I, it was so Welcome formal, to In Quarantine. Stop, stop acting like you, like you don't know me, man. First of all, <laughs> I've never asked you this question. What was your nickname with your last name? You know, like, what, did you, you had to have some kind of creative nickname. In high school, we were all so creative and giving uh, sort of sober hits, as they say. What, what was yours? Not that creative. They just called me Bodes. Like they went from Bodo to Bodes. Now, maybe I didn't, I wasn't interesting enough to deserve a better nickname, I suppose, but that's all it was, man. What about you? I just thought, you know, Bodo don't know. I mean, there's no like rhymes or, you know, we grew up in it was time. not. It was not a very hip hop community where I grew up. I got to <laughs> No, it wasn't. No. <laughs> okay. Now, Westchester in the early 80s. Yeah, it wasn't really happening yet. <laughs> all right. How, what yeah, about I, you, I, though, I, since I you brought it up? Say, I forgot you're from, what town in Westchester? The mean streets of Rye, baby. Whoa, Rye, New York. Yeah. The, the Rye Playland. Also that? I, I just grew up in the same media market as you, so across the Hudson, that's all I grew up <laughs> knowing about Rye. Was that, like, that was a playland I never got to go to play in. I knew there was a reason I felt close to you. It's because we're from the same media market. Yes, we are. That's how it's we get older and get into politics. Yeah. And you, you struggle in New Jersey where... Uh, I have two media markets, both extraordinarily expensive to run campaign ads, uh, the New York media market and the Philly media market. Oh, I feel your pain. We've all we've all had to deal with multiple media markets. And it's, not, <laughs> it's not easy. Um, so get, welcome to the show. Where, where are you? Are you, uh, are you in Jersey or in D.C.? I, I'm sadly I'm in I'm in Jersey. And I say that simply because, you know, you, you get this sort of Mitch McConnell controlling the Senate and you would think we're in the middle of a pandemic. Let's work on getting kids back to school. Let's work on uh, the the urgent need for rapid testing. Let's work on uh, the critical uh, challenges uh, that are facing the post office. But of all the things uh, that we have going on, um, he has sort of uh, dismissed the Senate in a sense, and we're, I'm up here uh, trying to help New Jerseyans in the best way I can. But the big help that we need right now in the middle of a pandemic and economic downturn a time of, of racial reckoning is, uh, I think, just to get work done in the Senate and, and pass things. Right. How's it been in the Senate building at this time? Like people wearing masks and shuttling around, otherwise doing business as usual? Or how is it? Um, so for me, my whole staff, I'm the only one that goes into the office and I've made everybody right. sort of work from home, um, which is great. I can sing in my office and not have my staff threaten to quit. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, uh, but, but it's, it's really, for me, it, it is sitting in my Senate office, um, on a laptop like I am now and zooming around the country or, or in conversations and negotiations with colleagues and the like, 
And the times that I will leave are either to sort of go to the Senate floor and register a vote on something, uh, which is now, right now, unfortunately, it's just confirming offices um, and uh, uh, judges. Um, no legislation. More, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, occasionally go, uh, there's a hearing that either I'll go in virtually or sometimes I'll mask up and, right. and go down. Gotcha. We actually, just a few hours ago, we got this big kind of historic breaking news that Joe Biden announced Kamala Harris as his VP pick. I, I think you're pretty close colleagues with her, right? Like, yeah, she's, uh, I, I, I always say she's a friend and a sister. We're, we're, she and I have been close for many, many years. And in the recent years, since she got to the Senate, yeah, we've just partnered on a lot of big efforts from getting anti-lynching legislation passed, criminal justice reform. We were the Senate co-authors of the policing bill, the, the George Floyd policing bill. And so she and I are, are, are close and I know her. So from just an independent perspective, individual perspective, I should say, I'm, I'm so thrilled about the choice just because I know how competent, capable, how she is this incredible um, combination that you often want in politics, which is, is someone who's got the big poetry, can stand up in front of a crowd with great charisma, energized. I've right? seen her do it. Yep. Yep. And then, and then you, she also has the capability from the big poetry to focus on the, the dotting of the I's, crossing the T's, attention to detail, working behind the scenes, um, getting the sausage made. And that's hard for me to use that metaphor as a vegan, but making the vegan sausage. Um, so she's just got this, this incredible talent. Um, that really um, inures herself to be a great vice presidential pick. But then I step back now and suddenly realize that this is an amazing black woman, daughter of an Indian immigrant and a Jamaican immigrant who went to Howard University. Um, mm. And um, she, in every step of her career, has had to make a way out of no way. There were no antecedents uh, in a sense, to the to the way to the path that she forged, and she went up the rough side of the mountain to climb now to the highest political ticket possible, and it is stunning and it is exciting and it has ancestors uh, of of us all cheering. Uh, it has all friends of mine. I've gotten texts from folks I haven't heard from a long time. It's like that movie Waiting to Exhale. It's like finally. Re- people are recognizing and seeing people like me and how talented we are. We're not being overlooked. We're not having doors closed on us. We're not having glass ceilings put above us. And so this on that level, to me, it, it almost makes me get uh, emotional, frankly, uh, uh, that I'm, I get so happy thinking about what this will mean uh, for this country and for history, for eternity. I don't think it's a secret. Like you, you came pretty close to the vice presidential nomination four years ago yourself. Yeah, I went through the process and got down to Hillary's final two or three. And they, and just like it was done in this process, uh, you know, campaign workers who don't know have to prepare for every contingency. So, what um, is that vetting process like? Whoa, how uh, how much how much fun or a drag is that? Um. It is a, uh, how can I say this in a very colorful way? It is like the most invasive proctology exam you will ever have to go through. Um, They're all somewhat invasive. Yeah. (laughs) I, 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 yeah, most invasive. (laughs) Um, 
you know, if you know the movie Fletch, now that I know we both were in the 80s growing up at the same time. Uh, yes. We both know the movie. Moon uh, River. Yeah. Moon River, exactly. I knew I could get you to sing in this podcast somewhere. I got this little <laughs> podcast bingo I set up for you. That I got a big, <laughs> a big center box for that one, getting you to sing. Um, so, yeah. So, look, they, they, your life is raked over with a pretty uh, fine-tooth comb. They um, they uh, dig stuff up that you forgot about, even. Uh, they go as far back as possible. And so from college essays that you wrote to all the way up to every vote that you've taken in the Senate that might uh, arise, some issues of concern. So I used to sit with banks of lawyers as they ask you lots of those questions. So but I know what it's like to do it through as Hillary did it, but we weren't really hanging out there the way that uh, Kamala and others were. They were out in the public in a way and being attacked. Yeah. Why do you think that was? It did feel like the handful of women who were known to be under consideration were really going, being gone over in a, in a, in a way that we didn't have certainly four years ago. Yeah. And, and the black women especially uh, were being put through a level of scrutiny and public bashing that really was just was frustrating to me. So I, I'm, I'm happy it's resolved and I'm thrilled at the, at the decision. On a practical level, we discussed the, the, the historic nature of the pick on a practical level. Um, and I, I'm curious about this, you know, from your own experience and perspective, as well as the broader game, how important is it to have a woman of color on the ballot as far as like, as far as winning the election? So, well, that's what excites me about Kamala is just number one, I just know, and in, in, in she's, she's hands down, period, a phenomenal choice that's going to make a difference. I don't know what their polling showed. I'm sure a campaign, I hope that the campaign was doing, you know, focus groups and polling. One <laughs> assumes. Yes, one assumes. <laughs> they did all that so they, that they saw how it would affect different demographics and the like. So I just know in, in an unofficial way, you and I are are recording this literally just a handful of hours, hours. Yeah. yeah since it was announced and, it, and and i wish this was a video for a second i can show you the dozens maybe well over a hundred now of text messages i've received from people that are not in the political world or media world they're yeah. just women and family members and others who are just so out of their sorts excited um because of what this they feel like this means and so that is going to very much energize, I think, key constituencies. And, and let's understand that the African-American vote is vital to uh, this election. And, and we know that Hillary, um, if, she, if she had the, a, a black turnout in 16, that there was in 14, in 12, rather. Um, she's president. We, she's president, easily, hands down. Slam dunk president, not even yeah. close. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe it'll help you know, in, the, in, the, in those critical places, especially like Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Detroit, you know, that that list of places that didn't quite come in last time the way Democrats had hoped. I have a question uh, uh, about you're in New Jersey now. I don't know where in New Jersey you are, but I'm in uh, Newark. I'm in, in Newark. Newark. Oh, of course, yeah. you're in Newark. Yeah, that I'm makes home. sense. Um, so there's this thing that happened a week or so Does ago. Does mean that you might visit me one day, man? I mean, because like. I feel this close to the friendship, but you know, you never come over. Uh, text me the address and uh, <laughs> the, the, the minute that the. Uh, do, you, do you cook? I'm not bad. You're not bad. I'm not, okay. I'm not bad. Yeah. Uh, I have I'd, I'd have to think a little about the vegan thing, but I could hack that. I oh, could, come could, on. 
Come no, on. No, no, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, uh, yeah, it would, it would be fine. Are, are you veganish? You know, um, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to say that. Uh, I don't eat a lot of meat, but um, you know, butter and eggs and dairy, a decent amount. Well, I, 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 I have always seen you as one of these men, and I use that word purposefully. Uh, that you know you are you strive to live the good life and what that means in terms of relationships and family and health and well-being and it's a struggle because you've had a, a profoundly to me exciting important career so I, i've just seen you professionally living this very intense life but also someone who's been striving for balance yep. and as a guy who has not really found it all the time <laughs> uh, i always look so the fact that you are disappointing me now by your cancerous uh artery clogging I, maybe maybe that's the balance you were looking for i seem to have impressed you favorably in the past and now i'm disappointing you and it comes into balance <laughs> that, I, I think that's how that works i i get that i get that did you do you did you have that perspective when you were when you were uh, uh, you know i i used to love bumping into you backstage before in the handful of times i would come, come on, on those platforms did was that was that did you get did you have the perspective that you were making a, a, a contribution to the the larger political like for us not really no i mean I, I think we we uh really make the show in a bubble it's you know it's pretty intense you make 160 a year and you don't really get to poke your head up very much um i think i was more aware like this is a good place to be because just because every you know every week for years on end it was making something that felt like it's funny, and it's also stuff that I care about, um, and that was more my motivation than any external effect that it might have had that was impossible for us to monitor or measure. And our 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 worlds overlap maybe more than you realize. Like one of my <laughs> favorite moments was John McCain had just given this speech, profound speech on torture, and John Stewart did a bit on it. And I get to the Senate floor and John McCain, who had become a friend, was on the Senate floor. And he goes, hey, did you did you watch The Daily Show? <laughs> and, and I look at him like, of all the strange things to be said to me on the Senate floor. And I'm like, no. And so John McCain pulls me into the Republican cloakroom, which we don't all, we sometimes go in the other part. You went in. I, know, I didn't know that. Yeah, but I but I'm now in the Republican cloakroom. He walks up to one of the attendants in the Republican cloak, cloakroom and the guy and John McCain's like, bring it up. And there I see um, John Stewart, you know, uh, pretending like he's doing drugs. He's like, ah, I love the old McCain. I love the pure McCain. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> tapping, his, tapping his arm like he's trying to get a vein ready. Right. <laughs> and and to, but the, the sweetest part of that for me was looking at John McCain, not looking at John Stewart as that was playing and seeing what it meant to him hmm. um, to be parodied in a way, but to be celebrated for taking a moral stance that he right. knew was the right place to stand. That's great. And it was a great moment for me to see that it, it actually affirmed and elevated uh, the, the actors on the stage uh, of the Senate floor. I was not aware of that. That's, that is a cool story. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about, uh, in, into New Jersey, uh, this event that happened at uh, the Bedminster at Trump National Golf Club. Uh, a week or so ago where he had, you know, he had a rally event there and, can I tell you another story before we go there? Because it actually takes place at the Bedminster National Golf Club. Well, then yes. Okay. 
So the first time I was there was for- If there were no segue, I wouldn't permit it, but this is a segue, so it's fine. That's I'm, how I I'm not, the, I'm, I'm not Corey non sequitur Booker now, <laughs> okay? I, I, that is not my middle name. Um, so, uh, so I am, um, I think I'm a city, I'm a, the mayor of Newark and I get invited to a wedding because I know uh, the big, a big, big democratic family were the Kushners. Yes. I've heard of them. Yes. And before they were Republican family or. Republican yeah, they were, they were major donors. Now I remember that major. I mean, they were big players. And, and so I, I knew the Kushner family well, and he's marrying Ivanka Trump and, I get invited to the wedding, and that's the only time I've been to the golf course. And the New York Times has this picture of me sitting in the wedding next to, I think it was Ivanka. And um, you, it was the, you can't remember if you were sitting next to the bride? I don't care no, who it was. Corey, if, if, if you're sitting next to the no, bride. No, 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 I got to... it wrong. I got it wrong. Give me some space here. I was okay. sitting next to the now first lady, Melania. Okay. And, and Donald on the other side of her. and. Uh, if you had gone up to me as I walked out of that tent and said to me that one day uh, Donald Trump would be president of the United States, for what we knew of him in New Jersey, his reputation was not great. Uh, I would have, I would have, you would have hit me by a, a two by four. And so, in many ways, I think, I think from that moment to what you're about to ask me about him as a president at that Bedminster, it's just, it's so inconceivable the reality we've been, we've been living for the last, uh, I'd say, five years. So to return to the scene of that crime, Bedminster, a week or so ago, the president owns the golf club. He has a rally there. I guess it's mostly or entirely golf club members. And there's dozens, maybe a hundred of them there. And they're all like, you know, they're cheek by jowl close. They're drinking. There's no masks. He's celebrating it. They're celebrating it. And, and I just... I want to ask you, like, what you make of that. Uh, th these are, among other things, your constituents. Like, what what do you think that's about? What are they thinking and what are they saying as as far as you can make it out by doing that? I, I have some visceral reactions when I saw the cheering or jeering or whatever. That I, I yeah. actually have, I have some visceral reactions, but I can't I can't get stuck there. I can't even dwell there because I can't do something about that. What I can do something about. You don't think there's a purpose to trying to understand what's, uh, what's behind that? So let me, let, me, let me maybe go deeper because I, I just want you to know where, where I, my motivations come from, which you know, I, I, just, I, just, I just think that we sometimes put our energy and attention uh, understandably to things that are not helping us. Like King wrote the letters from the Birmingham jail and explicitly said um, the, the white supremacists, or I think he said the KKK and white citizens council. He wrote that letter because his biggest concern was white moderates that were doing nothing right. about good people. As he said so eloquently um, that what we have to repent for in this day and age is not the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. So here I am 85 days away from an election that will define the culture of this country. And I will say affirmatively to you that I think that this election is not a referendum on Donald Trump. He wants to make it all about him. But to me, I think this election is a referendum on who we are and who we have to be to each other. 
And if we indulge in this, in this, um, I agree with that. And I see aspects of that coming out in the, in the Biden campaign a little bit, at least. Yeah. And so I don't like, I can't get, I can't allow myself to be pulled into a fruitless task of trying to understand folks that there's nothing I can do or say right now that's going to make them somehow change their view of Donald Trump, support Joe Biden. That is that is fixed. Now, I'm not saying that there's not pathways for redemption in the same way that John Lewis was visited by one of the people that beat him viciously and, and years later asked for his forgiveness. I think we all have pathways to redemption. But I'm, I'm more concerned right now. The bigger threat to me is people who are surrendering to the seduction of cynicism, um, that they think that this election, there's nothing they can do or if they vote, it won't matter. Um, who are crippled by a dangerous do-nothingness and think that that maybe I can just sit back uh, in this democracy and do very little to contribute to it. And, and that's what worries me more. I mean, I think, let's just roughly say that there were 53 million people that voted for Donald Trump in the last election and 56 million that voted for Hillary Clinton. But there were 100 million eligible voters people eligible to vote that didn't participate. And, 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 and that's a, a bigger concern that, that, that I have. And, and so I, I, I know that we go in this time of Trump from outrage to outrage. It may have been a press conference at a, at a, at a golf course last time. This time it's a, a COVID press conference that he does. This time it's a tweet that he puts. Uh, um, we, we, we are, we are, going from outrage to outrage, but, but what is the real right. deeper outrage? Yeah, I, I hear same. You said that, yeah, it's, uh, it's, that too is a distraction. And yes, eye on the ball, essentially. As you're bringing up, I did want to ask you about... Uh, but see, this, Steve, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you. No, 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 please. Podcast here, and I just keep interrupting you because I just want to go one level deeper that, yeah, eye on the ball, I, I agree with that, definitely. But the second thing I just want to say is it's, a little deeper than that, in the sense that um, the, 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 my, one of my favorite moments from my presidential campaign was running for a campaign uh, stage and having a guy stop me. It was, it was in Iowa, stop me at the base of the stage and just look at me with incredible fervor and say, "Dude, I want you to punch Donald Trump in the face." And this testosterone-laden moment between two big guys, but I don't give him what he wants. I look at him and I joke first and I say, "Hey, dude." That's a felony <laughs> and and to try to catch him off guard and then say that's exactly how we're going to lose this election by bringing the same energy that he has by fighting him on his turf and on his terms. That's what he wants us to do. Let me tell you why love um, is the better strategy. And I think at first he looked at me like I was, I think, uh, insane, but I got up and I made my case that we didn't beat Bull Connor by bringing bigger dogs and bigger fire hoses, but we beat him by uh, changing the energy, changing the frequency. And so th that's the second point I'm trying to make, which is I can't let his energy change my energy to be like his energy. I can't let his outrage shift me into that frequency. What I have to do is try to ignite a different frequency in this country. Um, all of us have to do that because at this moral moment, uh, we need to be elevated and not continue to see the descent for all of us uh, into hatred of our fellow Americans.
and the people at that at that place in Bedminster, I'm not going to hate them. I'm not. I'm not going to stop. Oh, I wasn't asking you to hate them. No, no, I understand more, what you're more, saying. More, more actually to understand them, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah. I also understand what you're saying about there's uh, there's a bigger way to look at all this. Yeah, and I'm not going to let them involve yeah. in me any negativity. Yeah. I, can't, I can't give that to them. Um, I think you've been pretty outspoken uh, this summer in the wake of uh, George Floyd's murder and the and the protests and the movement that is, you know, what didn't spring up from that is something that already existed and it's grown a great deal. It's August now. Where, where do you think we are with that? Where Where is that movement? And, and also, like, where do you want to see it go from here in the rest of this year, five years from now? What's your perspective? I, I'm hopeful that the kind of the expanding circles of empathy the um, just seeing the polling on Black Lives Matter shift so dramatically in such a short period of time um, to see the best-selling books, you know, in Amazon or New York Times bestseller list, ones that have to deal with um, with race, racial reconciliation, and more, and and so I'm hoping that this is the beginning of a longer, more difficult process of us understanding ourselves, of us ending the myths that we tell ourselves, the Disneyland versions of our history that we have been taught since we were a childhood, the Santa Clausification even of people like Martin Luther King, where we rub off their rough edges and subdue their radicalness for a comfortable uh, figures and, and don't see them in the contexts of a nation that had been destroying black bodies, black communities, black cities uh, with massacres and violence and systematic uh, denying of, of economic opportunity, stealing land, denying uh, um, pathways uh, to the American, the hope of America. And so I think as we better understand our history, if we speak truth to uh the jagged edges of this nation. I, I just hope that we go through that process. And I hope that it, it, it actually fuels a lot more committed action and urgencies because I, I, I do get upset um, with how we have normalized um, such violence in our community. And we don't even call it violence. Uh, you know, we, we have a nation where the number, the best indicator of whether you live around a toxic waste site where you have higher correlations of autism in children and birth defects, the number one indicator whether you will be poisoned by lead in America, drink dirty water, uh, breathe dirty air, is the color of your skin. That is violence that is going on every day in our country. I talked to a doctor uh, on a Zoom call last week who was telling me about the trauma of poverty, that a child below the poverty line it literally, the cortisol that's over-pumping in their brains, it affects their very well-being. Poverty is violence. I talked to, to a coalition uh, last week that just is on the simple pursuit of replacing every lead service line in America. We have 3,000 jurisdictions in America where children have more than twice the blood lead levels of Flint, Michigan. And yet we, and it's not that much. 
It's a fraction of what we've just spent on the COVID to, to replace all the lead service lines. But yet there's no moral urgency. We've become so comfortable with this nightmare that affects so many families. So I just hope that this awakening continues and it, and it makes us more, not just people who say that I'm not racist, but become anti-racists and, and taking on the structural uh, inequalities that exist in our country. What does becoming anti-racist mean to you? People interpret it different ways. What does it mean to you? Well, first, it means it means taking time to know, to really confront um, the systems of injustice that sustain. Like, why is New Jersey one of the fifth most segregated states in the country? And and do you really know uh, what shaped the contours of this state and how it was? My parents had to get a white couple to pose as them in 1969 because they kept being denied housing in white communities. And, and on the day of the closing, the white couple didn't show up. My father did and a lawyer. Oh, wow. And, and then the real estate agent punched my father's lawyer and signed a dog on my dad. And, and, and for us to break through and be the first black family to grow up in this amazing nurturing community. I, I mean, I'm still friends with my grade school and high school teachers who did so much for my life, but to get there and benefit from that incredible community and school system took literally overcoming physical attack. And, and, and so the first step of being anti-racist is like, do you know the, 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 the path that, that others have walked and experiences and histories that have yielded a nation right now where you know, you've heard a lot about the PPP program? Well, one watchdog group sent a black person and a, and a white person both in to get PPP loans to the same bank and gave them the same documentation. And you had dramatic different treatment of the black person versus the white person. You know what is creating that, what the history there is. And then the next thing is just not knowing with your head, um, but also knowing with your heart and, 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 and your hands and doing something about it. Are you actively engaged in addressing these injustices. And, 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 I, and I'll tell you what I mean by being an anti-racist, because um, I went back to knowing the story of how we moved into Harrington Park all my life. I went back, you know, I don't know if you know this, but senators, when they get to the Senate, those of them that have a high sense of self-regard, we write books. And so, and, and I've, so, I've seen, I've seen, I would say I've seen that, but not really read that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, on your, in some of your previous jobs, you had lots of those senators coming on to talk about their Indeed. <laughs> um, and Didn't read them then either. <laughs> well, in, in my book, I, I wanted to tell a lot of these stories of incredible Americans that somehow touched my life one way or the other. So I went back to find the people that used to meet in a living room and plan out these sting operations to help black families trying to get into the towns. And I found a lawyer that was one of the main lawyers organizing these white couples and sting, the sting operation overall. And it was Arthur Lessman. He's passed away since, but he was in his mid eighties, retired uh, New Jersey judge. And it was a great conversation. He confirmed a lot of the details of the story and I thought it was done. But then I asked him just a question that just, I suddenly realized, I, I just want to know, why? Why would a white guy in the 1960s, who he told me he was just starting his career, just starting a business? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's, there's I mean, there's the one answer is, I mean, it's the right thing to do, but there's a lot of practical reasons to not do it. 
yeah, I mean, people were afraid uh, of their real estate prices going down, of of the consequences, you know, uh, white flight and more. And the story he told me shook me because he said, I know the moment I made the decision, it was March 7th, 1965, before you and I were born. Mm. And if you look up that date and that moment, something happened pretty powerful at that moment because there was breaking news happening. And a white man on a couch is suddenly watching the news breaking that these marchers who started in Selma and were trying to go to Montgomery got stopped on a bridge. Mm-hmm. And he watched Bloody Sunday, them getting beaten with John Lewis at the front. And he was so shaken by this that he was no longer comfortable. And he said he, his first instinct was to go to Alabama as a lawyer and try to help out. And he realized he couldn't close his business. Heck, he couldn't even afford a plane ticket. And so he did something that is a powerfully anti-racist thing to do, a powerfully patriotic thing to do. So he decided that he realized how strapped he was in time and money. And so he did a calculation in his head. And he said, I could afford one hour a week of pro bono work. Hmm. For somebody near me that might need a help in the civil rights movement. And he calls around and he finds this woman named Lee Porter, who's now 93 years old and still leading the Fair Housing Council of Northern New Jersey. But she was the young head of the Fair Housing Council in 1965. And the two of them put together this sting operation. And he says, Corey, four years later, I get this um, case file from a family moving up from the South in distress because they're getting turned away again and again. And he goes, Corey, help that family organize the sting and get them moved into their home. And you know the name on the case file. I go, sir, no, I don't. He goes, it was Carrie and Carolyn Booker, your parents. How about that? And and so I always tell people like the most common way we give up our power is not realizing we have it in the first place. And one hour a week, this guy had dedicated in the beginning and it ended up changing. I wouldn't be having this conversation with you, frankly, if he didn't set off the dominoes. Um, uh, that that led to my family moving into a community and my life uh, uh, having such rich, nurturing soil with which to grow. So I that to me is anti-racist. That to me is a patriot. That to me is somebody that when they put their hand on their heart and says the words that we all say, says the words that people were willing to die for, from Beaches in Normandy to Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, that I swear an oath to liberty and justice for all. And and living that those words is a is a pretty hard thing to do. Living up to them is a challenge. But there are Americans that I meet every day that are actually doing that hard work and not doing it full time, busy with family, kids, and obligations. But they find every week something to do to tear down systems of oppression and inequality in our country, so that we are a more perfect union, and so that we do are a place of more justice and liberty for all. Here's a question that you are maybe, well, not literally, but close to literally uniquely maybe qualified to uh, to address. It's a, it's about an article that I saw just today. It was sort of posed as a, as a provocation. I'm curious to know your thoughts about it. Uh, it says that the Senate, because of its uh, overrepresentation of small states, is one of the most structurally racist institutions in the United States. What do you think about that? Well, I, 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 I don't think that the, I mean, remember how senators used to be, uh, they weren't elected. They were appointed by state legislatures. Yeah. 
And I think back then, <laughs> quite clearly, white men, men of property, uh, were the voters. Um, and But the result, the, the sort of structurally racist result, we have to confront in the sense that California, with 40 million people, exactly. has two senators. Wyoming, with less than a million people, has two senators. And so what has happened is... And these small states of, tend, well, almost all the small states are overwhelmingly white. I think that's the, I think that's the root of the idea. Oh, yeah, over from Vermont to North Dakota, very small mi minority populations. In the Senate, um, white Americans have extraordinarily more disproportionate power than minority Americans do. It's not proportioned to the population. And that that's creates a lot of problems. I remember the first time I, I spoke in the Senate, um, I, it, was, it wasn't in the Senate, I'm sorry, in caucus meetings where, where the Democrats go off and have this lunch. And it was when Ferguson was happening. And I'm a new senator and trying you know, not to talk. I wanted to be a workhorse, not a show horse. But I, I was so disturbed that day and we weren't talking about it in caucus. And so I, I remember standing up and pouring my heart out about what it was like growing up as a young black man in America and my some really bad incidences that I've had. But afterwards, I'm on the Senate floor walking along and there's a senator from, from, from Maryland who came up through urban politics like I did uh, named Barbara Mikulski. She's now since retired, re retired from the Senate. And I'm walking past, and she was the only senator that scared me, like one of the tougher people in the Senate. And she had a cane. Uh, and I, as I'm walking past her, she pounds the cane on the Senate floor, I think, if I remember correctly. And she goes, sit down. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And she looks at me and she goes, Corey, uh, the Senate is an agrarian body. And she goes, the, the House is a representative body. She goes, agrarian. That's the word she used. That's a strange word to use. I, it is in twenty what, like twenty fourteen or something. Twenty fourteen, exactly. And she goes, people from cities like us, Baltimore and Newark, do not have a representative voice in this body. And she goes, she looked at me and she goes, I want you to talk more. <laughs> <laughs> um, please raise your voice in this body. And that was the power to bring us full circle. You know, of Kamala being there with me when she, when she, and I recruited her. And I remember explaining to her why she needed to run for the Senate and what it would mm. do for her career, I thought, by taking that pathway and not running for governor. And um, when she was there, and Tim you gave her that career advice. It seems that was good career advice. I mean, I think we yeah, can I say, she, I said to her, say as of a few hours ago, that was good career advice. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Look, I knew she would be a, a, a national figure the, the second she would step into the Senate. And it would expand choices for her to go back one day and run for governor or to go on a national ticket. I, I, I knew that this was a, was a very likely possibility for someone of her, her talent and, and proud that I, I had that conversation. You want to know the funny conversation? We yes. both had said we had things to say to each other. She, I came giving the hard pitch for, um, for uh, running for Senate. She came in to give me the hard pitch. She had just recently gotten married, I think. And uh, she was telling me, you need to get married. 
<laughs> so she's she's one of my friends that's very happy that Rosario is moving in with me. Uh, uh, I think hopefully next week she's going to do a oh. trip across country. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's a big step. Uh, it is. It is definitely a big step, and I'm excited about but, it. But uh, during the, uh, yeah, if not during a pandemic, then when? <laughs> I mean. My brother, have I been the most difficult uh, podcast interview you've done? Because I felt no, like sir. I've been. Like no, sir. Your... no, sir. No, sir. You have not. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, I, I think you were probably uh, told not to say warned. Um, this podcast is produced by a Jewish cultural organization reboot. So I know you had some history with Jewish organizations back in college or graduate school um, and can spit a little bit of uh, Torah verse even every now and then. I just want to ask you a simple question now. Well, can I tell you something that's really funny? Because I have a night of a lot of interviews, but I have another podcast after this. I'm not exaggerating with a, uh, a, a friend of mine and it is all about Judaism. I mean, we are going to literally discuss my favorite Torah portion. <laughs> not a I thought, I thought that it was a safe assumption on my part that this podcast would be the Jewiest thing you did today, but no, <laughs> no, no. Wow. I, well, I, 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 uh, I, I sincerely uh, love the Torah and, and had many years to get a chance to, uh, you know, do a, a bit of Torah study uh, from the time I was in my 20s through a number of years. Uh, there's been about two or three rabbis I've been close to over the years that have really uh, gone over Parshas with me every week or most weeks. And um, my my study of Judaism has really enriched my life. And you basically in in the Torah and and Talmud you 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 have uh, some of the best minds in in human history dis- debating and discussing the good life like what is it to be a good and ethical person and I I have like like a lot of the leaders I inspire we've been talking about King he found a lot of strength from uh, Old Testament or, or Torah Talmudic wisdom and. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited. So why don't you give me, this is like my warm up. Well, that's, that's always, that's always been my ambition is to warm somebody up for the other Jewish podcast. (laughs) I feel like I've really hit it. Uh, the question I wanted to ask was just specifically during the pandemic, uh, what have you drawn on or found in Judaism that's spoken to you, inspired you, helped just seemed relevant. If anything, during, I think you, the, the reason why I'm stumped is because you said during the pandemic, during the pandemic, yeah. because leading into the pandemic, there was a, a passage of the Torah that was driving me through my presidential campaign. Um, I will I will I will accept that answer. Let's hear that, um, because it was it was really the Torah portion that I would speak of. And uh, in, in so many of my campaign stops because I think it's one of the more profound moments of despair um, and the emergence of of hope. And it's the moment, uh, let me just give you a little more background. The words that I'm going to quote to you, if you go there right now to the Lorraine Motel, you will see words from the Torah written at the very spot that Martin Luther King was killed. And so think of the grief and the wretchedness and the, uh, uh, the darkness of, of that assassination, that murder. And um, the, so the, the words are from Joseph's brothers. 
uh, when they when they see Joseph approaching, and they utter these words, they grab him to kill him, and they throw him into a well. And and we know though that he didn't die there as they intended, that he rose and he led a nation through crisis, uh, Egypt. And the words uh, from the Torah, uh, translated in English, are and the words written. Uh, it, where King was slain, are simply, Behold, here cometh the dreamer. Let us slay him and see what becomes of his dream. And I really think that for me, at a time of great despair, where you see death and violence and um, just the wretchedness of a moment, uh, that the dream should still drive us, and that in many ways, I just believe that we're we're a nation at that point where 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 we have seen so many fallen. Um, but we have to answer that question. A new generation has to answer that question now. What will become of the dream? And maybe, just maybe, we can rise up from where we are, and we too can lead a nation through crisis to better days. And and that is my hope and my prayer. Senator Cory Booker, we're going to leave it there. That's a good place to go out. Thank you so much for joining us on In Quarantine. Thank you, my friend. I'm Steve Bodo. We'll see you next time.